Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Robbie Keane announces his decision to retire from international football 12 years after breaking the Irish goal scoring record. That's how long Robbie Keane's career has been. Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen Murph Kent. Hello there. Hey, how are you? Uh, good, Ken. 13th of October, 2004 was the date. I've come across a match report from that night by John Brodkin for The Guardian. Oh, yeah. It's amazing, actually. This is like, it's like Robbie's career in microcosm. Uh, we might tweet a link to it afterwards. All the things that he's forever praised for are in this match report and all the things that, all the sticks that are always used to beat him. It's against Faroe Islands. There's yeah. stick number one to beat him with. <laughs> okay. Yeah. An early penalty took Keane clear of the mark. Yeah. So again, another, another stick. Keane scored, celebrated with the trademark cartwheel. The cartwheel ended so long ago, I don't even know if people like to just like that. It's not really a stick or a... I don't, know what, I don't really know what that is. He soon added another to guarantee a straightforward win. So, again, Robbie mm. getting another goal, getting in amongst the goals is definitely in the credit column. Keane failed to take four chances for a hat-trick, reports Brodkin. <laughs> so, you know, the little bit of wastefulness that sometimes characterised Keane's career. Uh, he has 23 goals from 56 caps. This is at this point. So that's a goal every 2.43 games, right? That's an average he not only kept up, but bettered. Ended up at 67 goals in 145 matches, which is a goal every 2.16 games. Wow. And uh, the final little bit here that I noticed that was a recurring theme through Keane's career, his quote after the game. It's a great feeling, Keane said. I can't really describe it. When I was a kid, I would play in the streets of Tala and dream of playing for my country. goals. <laughs> to break the record is extra special. <laughs> yeah, God, it's, it's, it's amazing that he got up out of the bed at all, given all, all the dreaming, dreaming he was, was having. Yeah, on. I'm surprised he went yeah. to school, even got up to practice his football. Mm. Sorry, I'm just dreaming of all the... Vo- ah, no, that's... that's it. Like, but, you know, that was a, a trope that was... It was a trope. ...repeated I... many times, even in his statement uh, at the, uh, that he released yesterday to announce his international retirement. We're going to talk to Emma Lowe. We're going to get into it in a second anyway and then talk to Emmett about it a little bit later on. About it, about him, I should say, Robbie Keane. Jonathan Wilson is going to be on today as well. He wrote a piece for The Guardian today entitled The Question, How Long Will Liverpool Keep Faith with Jurgen Klopp? It should be stressed. I'm sure Jonathan will stress that he didn't write that headline and... Uh, yeah, you have a quick. If you have, a, if you're in a spot where you can pause the podcast, have a quick read of the piece. Pause. We'll be waiting for you. He's been getting a bit of stick for today. He feels that people are reading too much into that top line there, and not into the substance of what he wrote. But we'll get into all of that. Let's first of all get into the report on sport. Well, you say read into. Uh, read might be the the operative word there. Uh, people are reading the headline and not the article. Um, ah, it takes a lot of time. How many people actually pause the podcast there? To read, to read the article as I advise him to. Put up your almost, hand. Almost none, if but I would say... Suggesting put up your hand if you, uh, if you pause the podcast. I don't know how we're going don't to... have time to read an article that takes three minutes to read. Mm-hmm. They could probably and do that a, and On a podcast, which is probably going to last nearly an hour, and we've got a problem. <laughs> we've, we've got a problem. People have no choice, because the reason so many people didn't stop to read, Ken, is because they're, they're on their bicycles, they're in their cars, they're on the move, they're in work. When this kind of feels like... It's a frenetic so, world of motion out there. Oh. Yeah, but what I'm saying is they kind of have no choice now. They've stuck their earphones in, they're listening to us, whereas you start a, a print article, Ken, and I mean, you can 
you can easily kind of give up on it halfway through. I'm not saying you should give up. It's a good article by Jonathan Wilson. It's worth reading. Um, so Robbie Keane, anyway, he he has retired. He's confirmed this retirement. It was, it was kind of, we expected this for a long time. Um, people maybe expected him to quit after the Euros, but that would have meant he didn't get to play in Dublin one last time. And so he gets to do that against, oh man, our uh, frequent opponent of Hated recent rivals. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, he's, uh, I suppose it's time to, to think back on Robbie Keane's career, his long, 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 long career, more caps and more goals than anybody else uh, for Ireland. You know, he finished, where would you say, who would you say scored more goals in the Premier League? Um, Nicholas Nelka, Dwight York, Robbie Keane or Ram Van Persie? He, the most out of the four. Yeah. Are you going to tell us Robbie Keane? I would, I would have said he was bottom of those four. You would have said he was bottom? Oh, second. No, he yeah. He's second, is he? Second. Um, he has got more than an Elka or York. Not quite as many as Robin Van Persie. But Robin Van Persie kind of was cheating a little bit by existing in this goal of game era, which kind of started at some point after the liberalisation of offside. You know, uh, Robbie Keane is 13th on the all-time list of Premier League goal scorers. Which is pretty decent. Yeah, it's very decent, actually. <laughs> um, and he's also 17th on the all-time list of MLS goal scorers. And provided he scores at least 10 more goals in his time in America, which I think he probably will. I've, yeah, I've seen some clips this season that suggest that he'll be all right. He's going nowhere. He will be in the top 10 there as well. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, Robbie's talking about playing until he's 40. For a club level. Maybe yeah, with, in the MLS. I mean, from what I've seen, I don't think, you know, his play is going to deteriorate massively between now and the age of 40. Yeah, well, as long as, he's, as, long as he can get fit enough to get on the pitch, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to need to be able to run around at a particularly high tempo to have an impact on those games. I mean, he is, uh, you know, if you look at the, the, that top goal scorer list in MLS... He, uh, of the top 30 or so, he's got by far the best, you know, goals per game, you know, goals per minute kind of ratio. Uh, and if you look at sort of, if you widen it out to the top 50 or 60, the only one on that list, you know, we're talking about the highest goal scorers in MLS history, who can come close to matching his lethality per <laughs> minute, is Bradley Wright Phillips, which is why a lot of people don't take these statistics that seriously. Um, but, you know, yeah, he could he could maybe play the 40. I mean, I did an interview with him for uh, Cara magazine a couple of, a few months ago, just before the Euros. Sure, yeah. Didn't I read it on the plane, Ken? Um, where he, most Cara magazines are indeed read. That's where they are. <laughs> uh, Not and out of their natural habitat or anything. That's good. <laughs> one of the things that came up, which, which I don't think was in the final version, luckily enough, because... Uh, oh, the director's cut. Hold on to your butts, people. Well, the one, one extraordinary thing about him is his kind of resilience, his physical durability and resistance to injury. For a player who was playing senior professional football age 17, um, to play as many matches as he did, to have as few injuries as he, as he had in his career was really amazing. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, <laughs> we were doing this interview in the hotel in Castle Dock, uh, and he was grumbling a little bit about a sort of strange clicking sensation he had in his knee, which it turned out was a, was a bad injury, probably the worst one he's ever had, and nearly kind of ruled him out of the Euros. But he did have this extraordinary flexibility. That was the thing he was talking about. I mean, why, why he didn't get injured much. He'd always had kind of great natural flexibility. I mean, you can kind of see it in some of the weird motions his body would go through scoring. Oh, the goal against Germany. It's 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 kind of a weirdly distorted um, body. The shape of a, the shape of his body as he as he hits the shot is not a lot of players could contort themselves quite like that. If you, there was a goal mm. he scored for Coventry against Arsenal. You might remember if you're uh, old enough. <laughs> this is a 20th century goal. Many uh, of our listeners cannot remember one goal scored by Coventry. There's not one moment that Coventry has flashed across their consciousness <laughs> with such power that they can now immediately recall that goal. The words, that? the words John Slacko mean nothing to these youngsters, Ken. Steve Grizovich. Um, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I think people don't know Steve Coventry played such a huge part in our, in our early lives, our formative years. Kevin Richardson, wasn't he Coventry? <laughs> yeah. Uh, after, after Arsenal, all the way down. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I see what you mean about Robbie's goal against Pe- Germany. Peter and yeah. yeah, he's watching it here. It's he's just kind of the way he's he bent over and yeah. almost at ninety degrees of the waist. His, his left arms leg are, is completely straight or something. It's it's straightened on the on the ground and it's yeah, it's weird. Do you know? I think what I think the reason for that is that it's that he's deliberately delaying and the the obvious thing to do from a physical point of view when the ball is headed down to him is to whack it in to the back of the net but predatory striker Robbie Keane realises instinctively that he has to just pause for a second so that probably sets his body off in a slightly <laughs> strange angle which is doesn't really matter because he got it he got a pass on her can and goal yeah I mean he he he, he was had a, here's this here's the commentary goal if we can talk see it's not actually it's I'm, I'm remembering it a bit crazier than it was yes. but it was like uh, he was really kind of quick that's such a great finish. Uh, running, this is Coventry against Arsenal. Coventry beating Arsenal in 1999. Uh, running onto a ball and sort of flicking it back uh, across the goalkeeper. But like just... Uh, it should be a left foot finish, but it's a right foot kind of side-footed finish, basically back over his shoulder nearly. It's, yeah. a, uh, it's a brilliant finish. So, I mean, he, he was kind of a bit of a... Like maybe people don't realise how freakishly talented... Uh, Robbie Keane was. I mean, how good you have to be to be able to do what he did. And also how kind of weirdly self-assured he was. You know, um, I remember speaking to Damien Duff about this, you know, and he was, they were about the same age. In fact, Duff is older. Duff is, is more than a year older than Keane. Um, but Keane kind of established himself in the Irish team a solid two years before Duff did, just because he, you know, he, he kind of never, Duff was, Duff would kind of Oh, I'm not sure. I'm a little, you know. He he sometimes would have little moments of doubt or worry. Also, he was stuffing himself with pasta all the time on the advice of nutritionists, and he was about six kilos overweight, which didn't help. But uh, <laughs> that old late twentieth century nutrition uh, wasn't what it used to. No, no, avoid green vegetables. There's no there's no energy in those. Just get that. Just lo- load those carbs. You want glycogen in your muscles. Muscles, literally, syrupy with glycogen. Um, uh, Who's, yeah. who, who brought in the brown pasta? That's cheating. Yeah. Get, that's, the, get the white know, stuff into you. Uh, energy released immediately into your blood. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what you want. Quick release. And inches added to your waist. But but he just had this kind of confidence, which is so weird. It's You know, it's, it's, not, it's not normal. It's like, why? It's difficult to explain why exactly. Well, because he was so good, though, no? I mean, compared to the players he was going up against, certainly in Ireland. Well, what, normally happens is, what normally happens is player... Uh, player is excellent at school for his club against his mates in the park his or her mates they go up the ranks and the further up the ranks they go the less the advantage they have over others seems apparent and by the time they get to the very top they're probably in a mindset where okay I'm actually not even I'm not the best player in the team maybe I shouldn't even be on the team whereas with Robbie that didn't seem to happen he was presumably always amazing as a kid he we know he was amazing as a kid because we saw him uh, in underage tournaments and in, I guess that's what it is. I don't know if that's what you're saying. I'm, I'm kind of putting words in my head here, but that it, each step up didn't phase him at all. He still he, like, he goes into the Ireland team and he just assumes, well, of course I'm the best striker here. Yeah, Look at this big beanpole Quinny. I mean, he's grand, but like head the ball down to me there, big man. You know, <laughs> I'm going to overtake your record. Uh, uh, Quinn said that. Quinn said he was cocky as hell when he came in, which yeah. is what you need sometimes. Yeah, um, it's uh, you know you kind of wish more there was more players with that attitude because usually a player of that age is, is timid or like you know maybe can be confident at first and then quickly somehow the bubble bursts I mean he did have a bit of a slump I suppose at one point around 2001 because he left out of the game against Estonia I mean that was I remember it was Estonia because it came up again when he was dropped against Scotland for different reasons 11 years later I was like oh the last time this happened or 13 years later actually what am I saying uh, and the last time this happened was against Estonia but that, at that stage Mick McCarthy was kind of like he wasn't too happy I mean it was because his club career was a bit of a mess at that point it, it was interesting because he was often held up as like an example of this is how a young player should do it Robbie Keane could have gone to Liverpool uh, didn't want to, you know. Didn't, you know, he he dreamed of playing for Liverpool. Uh, you know, as he <laughs> later said, could have gone there as a as a kid. Didn't though because he didn't think he'd play. Went to Wolves instead. Established himself really early in their team. Then went to Coventry and played a brilliant season in the Premier League with Coventry. And so far, so clever. Uh, we're really growing a career here. You know, as Brendan Rodgers says, I'm trying to build a career. You know, when when. Uh, not destroy it when he was talking about having 
not being interested in the Chelsea job. Um, so he was building the career. Then Inter arrive, Inter of all clubs. And Inter, at, at that point, were the world's dumbest club. They really were. It's, it's hard to maybe conceive of Inter as mattering at all these days. It's just because they've kind of dropped off their radar, really, of the top level in European football to such an extent. And they won the Champions League six years ago, sure, but it was a bit of a, you know, um, they, they haven't done anything in a while. But back then, they were big. They were kind of a big deal. You know, they had Ronaldo. They had Christian Vieri. Robbie Keane, the, the uh, 19-year-old uh, or 20-year-old Coventry player, is offered the chance to join them uh, for, you know, they're, they're going to sign him for like 12 million pounds. Uh, I remember seeing an interview that he did at the time uh, after he was about a month in Italy and Satanta had gone over to do an interview with him and they asked him, so how long did it take you to make up your mind that, you know, Inter was the right move for you? About two seconds, he said. <laughs> so this is where things went off the rails. You know, in terms of career, career now Robbie Kane had, had been watching, I assume, Italian football on TV, uh, you know, born in 1980, mm. he would have got the chance. He's to, of the vintage, all right. Yeah, yeah, he would have been watching a bit of the Italian football. He maybe saw Maradona playing for Napoli. He definitely would have seen the Milan teams uh, of the early 90s. Gaza. And it just looked way better. Italian football looked way better than English football. There was just no comparison. And he would have thought, well, that this is it. I, this is a this is a real big time. I've arrived. But it was a little bit too much too soon. Because you're not going to get in the team when they've got, you know, Ronaldo, Fieri. Who else do they have? Ricoba. Like, ridiculous team. Mm. Ridiculous set of players. Poor team. Uh, he played. They, they got knocked out of the Champions League. I'm, I think I'm sure Zanetti was there because he seemed to play for about 20 years. Oh, Zanetti was there, yeah. Uh, although I wouldn't have been competing with Robbie Keane. Oh, for sorry, points. yeah, strikers only, he, sorry. He scored, I think they lost, was it to, it was like Halmstads or Helsingborg. Mm, or, they had a terrible European loss early on, yeah. And he hit the post with a back heel in uh, the San Siro leg, which if it had gone in, maybe things would have gone differently. But of course, he just didn't really, he couldn't really adapt, couldn't really get the team. Eventually then went to Leeds, Leeds, which looked like a good move at the time, Irish manager, loads of good young players, total financial meltdown then you know these are trying to get rid of him and he went to Tottenham Tottenham is I suppose his best club but even there you know it was um, you know there was this kind of weird inconsistency to what he was to what he was doing he never quite managed to fully establish himself like when Spurs bought him it, was kind of, it wasn't like wow here's you know here we've got Robbie Keane he's the man we're going to build our team around for the next you know few years it's more like oh what an advantageous cut price deal we've managed to negotiate from the Leeds fire sale this guy, like I think Spurs paid seven million for him or something like that. Um, they were like, "Well, that's a that's a bloody good price." You know, we've he's a bargain. Mm. You know what I mean? We'll see how we'll see how this works out. Rather than, you know, this guy's going to be. So yeah, I mean, there was um, the club uh, career maybe could have. Oh, been keep going. I'm enjoying handled. this part of history because you do forget. So Just going down through the so whole he moves thing. to Liverpool. Well, he played at Spurs for for a long time. Uh, he won the the League Cup, which is his only trophy before he moved to America. Uh, his only trophy in English football. Uh, and I remember how happy he was to win that. If you if you need to be cheered up, just look at Tottenham's celebration after they beat it was at Man United, I think, in the League Cup final, and Robbie Keane at the trophy lifting the trophy and how happy he is. Mm. Uh, he looks like a cartoon of himself. Uh, he's he's pretty pleased. Went to Liverpool. That was that was a bit of a disaster. I mean, that was the one. That was another confidence crisis for him. I think. Now, I'm sure he might even dispute that now. But I remember him saying, "Oh, you know, as a as a senior player, you don't worry about because he he didn't score his first couple of games. And not only did he not score, he had like a couple of air shots. You know, embarrassing, embarrassing sort of stuff that shouldn't be happening to a top player, like colliding with teammates, blocking goal bound shots by other players." This kind of stuff that's happening when things aren't going for a player, they kept sort of happening in a row. And he kept sort of doing, giving the same line after his, oh, no, I'm not worried. If I was if I was a kid, maybe I'd be worried. But, you know, I'm, I'm experienced enough to know that that's how football is, you know. And it just kind of kept going. It was a bit of a nightmare. And you could see there wasn't this confidence really from Benitez. And he did end up scoring a few good goals. He scored a great goal, for instance, against Arsenal. Um, cracked a volley into the top corner. He scored a good goal I can remember against West Brom um, but Benitez ran him out of there 
ran him out of there in the January transfer window. He was only there for like six months, which was actually a crazy move looking back because that was the season when Liverpool were like two points off winning the title. <laughs> was it really necessary at that point to to run Robbie Keane out of town or might he have been worth having in the squad? Benitez, I remember saying, could you have seen Keane scoring a lot of goals? You know, in a press could, do you think, does anyone here think Keane would have scored a lot of goals? It was obvious that he didn't think he would. But, you know, he had scored for all the other teams he played for, so it wasn't really beyond the bounds of possibility. I mean, I think this, I think at Liverpool is where he really came up against the, the problem that he had in the later phase of his career, which is that he is a, stri- he is a striker for 4-4-2. Mm. He's not a striker for 4-2-3-1, which is what Liverpool were playing at that time. He, is, he, he does not fit the profile of the centre forward in a 4-2-3-1. He, when he was, when he kind of first emerged, was everybody played four four two. His ideal partners were, you know, he played with uh, with Quinn brilliantly. He played with Berbatov brilliantly. Um, like the partnership with Berbatov was was really good. I mean, look back at the last season, the oh seven oh eight season, him and uh, and Berbatov, absolutely brilliant. Uh, Berbatov understood what he's going to do. People didn't understand what he what he was going to do. I mean, this was the thing. I mean, I'm going to do it. Do it. Mention it. <laughs> well, Henning Berg, the former Manchester United player. Uh, Long-time listeners will appreciate this one, Ken. If people are tuning into the podcast for the first time, they might wonder why I'm so excited about you bringing up the Henning Berg. He thought Robbie Keane was, was his toughest <laughs> opponents that he played against in the Premier League. And I mean, it, that was against people, uh, over people like Alan Shearer, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Yeah, all, all the top uh, He was the fourth. He was a, Michael Owen. Michael, this is when Michael Owen was, was good. Uh, Thierry Henry, he didn't think it was difficult to play against. He said, I always know what Thierry Henry is going to do, but the reason Robbie Keane is difficult to play against, I have no idea what he's about to do. Like, he, he doesn't have a style of play. It's just all kind of random and improvised. Yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah. And I, he's I understand less the, the point he was making about Henry in that. No. Oh, I knew what uh, he was going to do. About, yeah. Obviously, I couldn't stop him, but I well, mean, he, 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 said, didn't, he, he never surprised me. He, he just said scored Henry, goals Henry, goals, is, so. Henry was stronger than me. He was bigger than me, stronger than me, faster than me. He was better than me in every way, but at least I understood what he was, what he was, what the game was. <laughs> Whereas this guy just didn't get it. Like, what, what is he doing? He seems to have an incomplete understanding of the phrase "toughest opponent." Well, he he said toughest, but this is the most difficult guy to play against. He said it was a nightmare to play against. I mean, he was a nightmare to play with as well. I think for a lot of players, only some of them understood him. Berbatov, most obviously, Quinn. Um, maybe not that many others. There haven't been that many partnerships. I mean, the thing that I Beckham. Beckham, oh, like Galaxy. Yeah, sorry. I was thinking, I was, what's he talking about? I was, trying, I was thinking, what? Scanning the nineties. Did he play for Manchester United? Ferguson did say, ah, he's not worth that. Uh, didn't Fer- Ferguson say I wouldn't pay half a million for him? Never mind the six million Coventry have paid. Take that, Strachan. Oh, I was wondering snake. what. Yeah, what's what's Ferguson up to there? Yeah, little ginger snake, Strachan. You've overpaid for him. Um, <laughs> Something along those lines was—I can't remember the exact quote. He didn't have very much time with Beckham. I think he had one season with Beckham in in, uh, in LA. Um, but but I—I I mean, I was struck always by the fact that he couldn't. I mean, I remember once it was his hundredth on the occasion of his one hundredth cap. Uh, that was the year twenty ten. Some of our listeners, maybe the older ones, will remember Robbie Keane's hundredth cap. Uh, Are you having a, a sort of <laughs> midlife crisis? Today? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk to our I older think, listeners. I think most of our, but I think most of our listeners will remember Robbie Keane's hundredth cap. Well, look, hopefully <laughs> you remember back that far. 2010, uh, it was the opening of the Aviva Stadium. Oh, I remember uh, it well. Ireland against Argentina. Lionel Messi. Has it recaptured the atmosphere of the old Lansdowne Road, Dawn? Never will, Murph. Never will. Great day. It was that a kip, old, that it, old kip. It that was, was our, our kip, kip. though. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sorry, kip. Young, uh, Robbie Keane out in the, out in the uh, pitch with uh, young Robert, his son, uh, proudly accepting the congratulations of the Aviva Stadium on the occasion of his 100 cap. Oppo- opposition included Lionel Messi, uh, who went off at halftime having slunk around in a disinterested manner. Angel Di Maria spoiled the party by scoring the only goal. Uh, but Robbie Keane, I remember in the build-up to that, was being asked all these questions. Oh, it's your 100th cap against Argentina. And by coincidence, your first cap was also against Argentina. What do you remember about that first cap? Not, not first cap, first game at home. Yes. I keep saying that, but it's, it was actually second cap. It's first home match. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't really remember it. <laughs> How can you not remember? How can you not remember he can that? Remember, it's just what he says to them. No, he says he, he can't. This is the thing. He, he doesn't want to get, he, he, does, he doesn't particularly enjoy 
reminiscing on parts of his career with the media, I find. I've seen him I've seen him ask so many times about things and he just <laughs> he just Are you sure it's not just a he didn't seem though, to remember. Yeah. He didn't seem to remember. And I thought, is this is this why he is the same now as he was then? If Robbie Keane is sitting in the pub with his mate, Ken, who asked him, Robbie, what about that first cap against Argentina? I have a feeling he had an anecdote to tell. He'd have something he'd remember from the game. Well, maybe. Or else he's just not great company. Maybe he, he only remembers. He probably is. He only remembers the unpublishable stuff. That yes, could, true that, could, that could be it. He remembers all of the filth that happened around the game, but nothing about the football itself. He's just so deeply immersed in the flow state that uh, he can't actually remember any of it once he comes out of there. Either that, or he just doesn't have that much, that really good memory of stuff that happens. I mean, I, the the person who I was thinking about. That's the opposite end of the scale was John Giles, you know what I mean? Mm. I remember you talking to Giles about like his debut for Man United. Now we're talking about 1958, right? I think it was his first goal for Manchester United. Was it against Fulham? Could have been he he described it in detail. He described yeah. where he was in the pitch when the ball, you know, whoever, which, whichever team may pass the ball and, you know, how he controlled it and then how he moved forward. And It was a radio commentary. It was like, what? Yeah. He, he, you know, he remembers all that. He's got photographic recall of all this. Yeah. But he, but he did. He, li- he literally does have photographic. No, yeah, it's not even. Yeah, with Giles, it's not the, the thing you get from it's, some guys yeah. where they're embellishing. It's it's because he remember. I remember him actually in an ad break after that. I was like, Jesus, that was unbelievable. Uh, like you remember that in such detail. And he it's goes, more than fifty years later. But he said, he, he said, I think this was in the ad break. Always great when you have these great conversations <laughs> off air. Uh, he said. Well, to be honest, John, I can remember if you asked me about a big game, was it Stella Maris he played for? Whatever club team he played for uh, at under 15 level, yeah. I'll remember it. You know, if like not every single game, but if it's a cup final, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to give you detail, you know, which is amazing. Anyway, that's not quote the Robbie Keane. No, there are different, there are different paths to greatness. Uh, one is the photographic recall path. Uh, and I, would, I always wondered if maybe that uh, was why John Giles at the age of, you know, 36 or 37 was in some ways a better player than when he was, you know, at the peak of his physical powers, aged, you know, 22 or 23. You know, uh, layer after layer of experience in terms of mm-hmm. learning more and more about the game. I mean, I remember him talking to you as well about, like, how, uh, you know, after a game or the sort of the night of a game, he'd kind of lie there in bed thinking about what had happened, re- replaying it, replaying it in this sort of DVR of his brain and thinking, mm, I don't know about... Maybe that was the wrong decision there, or that worked well. I might look at that again. You know what I mean? Mm. This is kind of reflecting on and trying to refine what he was doing and learn from it and keep progressing. Whereas Robbie Keane, I think it's fair to say, without wanting to sound harshly critical of him, there wasn't really that much progression in evidence in terms of his uh, his style of play or effectiveness on the field from from when he was 19 to when he was 29. I don't really think uh, he showed that. But what he did have was an incredible talent to begin with, which, uh, you know, it's it's a kind of a familiarity contempt thing, I guess. Maybe it's it's hard for us to sometimes step back and realise what a big career he has actually had. I realise it, Ken, if it's any cause like You've always been, I've you've always, always been a you've always loved I won't settle the pub argument with you, Ken, by informing you. He gets the ball, goals, he scores a goal, I believe. Might have been he gets the ball, he's, 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 he It was Cyprus, it I think we were playing Cyprus. We were in the middle of arguing, oh, Robbie, another waste of chance. And I was like, he'll score, don't worry. And then, boom, header, goal. <laughs> and you know when you celebrate a goal when you've been when it also wins you an argument? Yeah, this yeah. This sense of wild vindication. Yeah, you took your top off as I recall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, waved yeah. it around your head. Here, well, we got I, it. Yeah, I remember you, you oh, no, I was moved by your, by how moved you were. Yeah. Uh, you had a religious experience following the Irish football team. A, a religious experience. I mean, not in tune with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no false gods for me. Mm. Well, I'm afraid that unless he's wearing number for ten one, for one night green. in for one night in Estonia, <laughs> Owen McDevitt was guilty. <laughs> Owen McDevitt uh, behind the goal. Oh, that's another one. That's a, that's a different behind that behind that game. goal as Robbie Keane led that uh, destruction that ra- rampage rush. rampaging against nine man Estonia <laughs> <laughs> leading Ireland to a four 0 win. Robbie Keane has religious experience, and yeah. you were behind the goal, weren't you? And you, yeah, I was behind the goal for that game. And yeah. you were. I remember you telling me afterwards. You know, I was just like looking at him, going, "You are a legend. You are a legend." I, I don't remember that. Oh, you, you were. You, I remember you saying that. I just love. I love, I love you. I love you. <laughs> but there was loads of there was loads of people who felt the same way that night. You know, and, and unless you were there, you can't understand. Anyone who wasn't there in Estonia can't understand. I understood, though, and I was there, not behind the goal. No, you were working. I managed to sneak um, a night off. But look, it was, it's been great. Maybe one more time, win one more for the Gipper. 
the Gifford <laughs> being all of us, I suppose. Uh, we got to return to Robbie Keane very shortly with Emmett. Is, uh, uh, but we've talked a lot longer for a lot longer about him right here than I intended to. Well, we'll just quickly talk about some other stuff. Rattle through the other important sport bits, please. Um, Dundalk uh, got knocked out of the Champions League, but at least have a pretty decent entry in the Pushkas Award. Oh, come on. We've got to get... Don't stiff us this year, FIFA. Is it FIFA? It is FIFA, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you didn't give Stephanie Roche the award. You're going to be giving it to Robbie Benson. What a goal! Oh, unbe- unbelievable! Uh, if you might, if you're old enough, Owen, you might recall Jeremy <laughs> Goss. <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy Goss, Norwich against Bayern Munich uh, back in the day. Uh, wonderful goal, wonderful strike. But I think Benson's was better. Mm. Uh, also, the the great celebration of Stephen Kenny. You know, that's a disbelieving smile of Oh my God. That's incredible. We're going to do it, yeah. Um, unfortunately, didn't do it in the end, but a good result. Just a pity they couldn't uh, couldn't get one more goal. Great really. result and sets them up for the Europa League campaign pretty well. That's yeah. the other point. If, you know, if you go into if you get into the final knockout stage and you're wiped by a team, it's not good for confidence. But the fact that you can feel aggrieved about a penalty in the first leg and go and have have a proper bash in the second leg should they should be really confident, yeah. But there was a really sad scene taking place at Manchester City, Owen, where where Joe Hart was wheeled out for one last appearance. Well, what everyone takes to be one last appearance by Pep Guardiola. 5-0 up from the first leg, Pep decided that he could entrust the goalkeeping position to Joe Hart's, well, safe hands, but somewhat dubious feet. (laughs) Uh, Hart responded by completing 100% of his passes. And this is put to him afterwards. He said, well, pigs do fly. Uh, apparently he'd only done this twice in his career, although because it's an Opta statistic that may only relate to the Premier League, uh, City signing Bravo, a player who did it five times last season, uh, completed 100% of his passes, that is. Uh, it is going to be interesting, though, to see how this works out. Barcelona have, have also signed Sillison, uh, the Netherlands goalkeeper, um, another one of these footballing goalkeepers. I kind of wonder if maybe they're going a little bit too much towards the footballer side of the goalkeeping equation though your goalkeeper should also be a goalkeeper Sillison has never really impressed me much in that in that sense and I think it will be interesting to see how Bravo does uh, I mean it's one thing to do that you know five to complete all your passes you're playing for Barcelona you know you're playing for Barcelona everybody passes way more than everybody else you know what I mean it's every Barcelona player is passing a lot it's just the way they play will you be able to do that in the Premier League he's not the biggest goalkeeper as well uh, I mean it will be Victor, you remember when Victor Valdez played for Manchester United? I think he, did he only play the one match? Um, seemed to be a personality issue there as well, didn't there? There was a personality issue, himself, but there was also a, oh my God, Victor Valdez has never played against a team that crosses the ball and tries to run into him issue. You know what I mean? There was a, there was a sort of fragility, uh, which, I, which I think will be the first thing that Bravo will have to deal with. Man City, Man City actually, there was some interesting stats there uh, I was looking at showing the average height of Premier League teams. Who do you think, uh, in terms of the players who have played, players who have appeared for these teams already this season, who do you think is the tallest team on average in the Premier League? Ah, come on. This is the kind of thing, this is where listeners kill us, Ken. You ask us these very hard questions. We get them wrong, we flounder around. Okay, I'll give the answer that you're expecting, that, you know, Joel Punter should give you. So that's Stoke City, right? Stoke City, tallest. Stoke City. I'd say Chelsea are up there. Stoke City would have been, but I can see your logic. You're you're thinking Ryan Shawcross. You're thinking Others. Tony. You're thinking Tony Pulis, right? Yep. So where's Tony Pulis now? West Brom. And who's the tallest team in the Premier League? West, West Brom. Brom. West Brom. Uh, second. My thinking was my methodology was yeah. correct, but my uh, who, who are Jose? Who are Jose Mourinho's three closest managerial buddies in the current Premier League? Oof. Obviously, Tony Pulis is one. Big Sam. Big Sam, Sam isn't in the Premier League no, anymore. No. Oh, Lord. Please, Ken, this is getting embarrassing. Another P manager. Alan Pardew. Alan Pardew. And his former protege from Real Madrid, Idor Karanka, the Middlesbrough manager. And they are the top three tallest teams in the Premier League, followed by Manchester United, who, of course, have bought some strapping players in Zlatan, Paul Pogba, Eric Bailly. Well, that was my logic behind Chelsea. I thought they'd still have a lot of ta- a lot of talls mm. uh, based on Mourinho's time in charge there. They're mid-table. Mid-table. Um, and bottom of the table at a titchy little five foot nine is the sky blue of Manchester really? City. Mm. Wow, that is interesting. The sky blue of Manchester City. So, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious what's going to happen 
in a lot of their games this season. You've got a league which is full of quick athletic players. I mean, every team has got fast players, strong players. That's that's the level the Premier League is at now. You can you can buy speed, you can buy power. Uh, City have got more skillful players than most of the other teams. They've got a goalkeeper who likes to play football, may not never actually have been seriously tested by a cross in his career until now. It is, you know, certainly for the last few years, there haven't been that many. Nobody gets to play that way against Barcelona. They are going to be hammering him. I mean, everybody's going to be tr- trying to do it. It's like, let's, let's test this guy. Let's see what he can do. I mean, he's surrounded by all these tiny defenders. Right? He's surrounded by fullbacks, fullbacks playing at centre at centre back. You know what I mean? It's not like uh, John Stones, another guy who's good with the ball at his feet. It's gonna be. This is what it's what it's gonna be, and uh, it's gonna be interesting. Really interesting to see how he's gonna handle it. That's it for Kennedy's report on sport. See if you don't get his out with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got my Teddy Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so it's off, don't try to get some beep. You know me, but I can't yell me. I can't yell me, I can't yell me. I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans. Just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! He's your biggest fool in Manchester. We'll get straight back to Robbie Keane with Emmett Malone. Emmett, if you could uh, cast your mind back a long, long time at this stage, I want to ask you if you do you remember seeing Robbie Keane play for the first time? Um, I remember seeing him in youth games. I mean, uh, I go back that far with him, and he goes back that far. Uh, uh, the the under the under seventeens, the under eighteens. I used to do a lot more youth uh, games at that stage, and I remember being in Cyprus with him, and then Nigeria uh, with Brian Kerr's sides. And I and I think probably um, having seen him t- play a couple of times in Dublin, Cyprus, and Nigeria, my really outstanding first memories of him, Cyprus in particular, where where the Irish youths won the uh, the under 18 under 19 uh, European championships and uh, he was outstanding there I remember the night that he scored twice against Cyprus when um, when the Irish team really looked to be going out uh, on the basis that everybody assumed England would win the other group game that night but um, Robbie scored a couple of times that night and um, and they went through and there was something about him even at that stage I think you know the people you know there was a couple of people around that at that time John Shea in the in the under 17 team uh, was coming up uh, um, the kind of you know, uh, slightly behind him, but Damien Duff, um, uh, Richard Dunn, they were all kind of in that U team, and 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 people really did expect kind of um, a lot from them. Uh, there was certainly a lot of optimism about about where they could go, but Keane in particular, there was something about his attitude, his application, and um, and he's just exciting. Uh, you know, I guess it's always the same with with young strikers yeah. that uh, that are prolific that you that you really think if this guy could deliver uh, at senior level, he could be really important for us. Yeah, we were talking to Oshie McConville in our other podcast today about the Dublin Kerry game, but he's a huge Robbie Keane fan, and he. He remembers the early days with Coventry in particular once he had signed and started playing for them, how excited you were to watch those games. And as Ushin said, you, you couldn't believe this guy was Irish in the the way he played the game, the skill with which he played. But it's funny because I suppose Keane very much fits the Irish mould if you go by the kind of Dunphy Giles street footballer kind of vibe, very sort of unvarnished in a, in a certain way. Yeah, I think so. I, I heard Mick McCarthy talk about that uh, yesterday and, and and this morning again, and uh, and there's that definitely that element about him. Although what McCarthy was also talking about was you know the street football kind of street footballer enthusiasm for playing uh, mm. uh, for playing football that he just wanted to get out there. He wanted to train hard. He wanted to play games, and there was no doubt there that there was that aspect of him. But um, he was ah um, oh, look, he you know I, he was hugely instinctive about his positioning. Um, uh, he 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 you know he just knew. Uh, how to be in the right place at the right time, which was which was key, and um, and I think that came to him in a way that um, not that other players can't be thought because I think they can be, but you know it's an enormous advantage when you have it naturally from a, from an early age, and he did, and and we saw that early on. I think it was I think it was exciting in the early days to think that he was Irish. Um, he seemed to have um, so much going for him in terms of pace, touch, um, because he was a technically decent player. You know, it wasn't again. You know, you talk about street footballers. He was. Uh, he was um well you know really really clever with the ball at his feet he could beat 
players in close quarters. Um, he also had a bit of a turn of pace, and um, and then just you know from particularly from close range, he he was just so good at uh, first of all being in the right place and then putting the ball away, uh, even in pressure situations. It was it was great to watch, and it was yeah, it was very exciting from a from an early stage. I think at Coventry, by the time he was playing first team football at Coventry, it was really really mm. clear that he was going to make it. The extent to which, you know, was, was still to be seen, but uh, we knew he was going to be a big player at that stage. Do you think that he achieved his potential? Not entirely, no. I think he was uh, hampered uh, the best uh, years of his career by by misfortune at club level. I think, um, you know, at Spurs he was unfortunate that they had a few strikers, Jermaine Defoe being the obvious one, another natural goal scorer, and so he probably never really, like he went through spells of nailing down his plays, but never became the sort of regular. He didn't have five, six, seven years at the best the best years of his career as a, as a regular at a leading uh, Premier League play, uh, club, and I think he was worth that, you know. Um, he was unfortunate at Spurs then he gets the move to Liverpool uh, there's just politics left right and centre with that Rafa Benitez didn't really want him he was brought in by people above him and, and, and Benitez I think made a point you know almost of of, of engineering the, the move not working I, I mean if you look back on his stats even then he was playing slightly out of position he was you know um, he, he wasn't the, the, the first choice uh, goal scorer at the club and yet his return on the minutes played on the pitch was okay I mean I definitely I personally think Liverpool could have worked for him and uh, and he could have been an important player for them um but he goes back to Spurs and, and ultimately is, is kind of shabbily enough treated by Harry Redknapp. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't, think, I don't think he really did achieve his potential. I think in inter- international terms, he did insofar as um, he achieved his potential. He delivered everything you could have hoped for and more given the players that he had around him. And Ireland, for much of, of, of his international career, haven't had a great, uh, haven't had a great team. Um, and uh, and he's a player who would have thrived in a better Ireland side. Would have scored, you know. I think we, we, it's a recurring theme that he didn't score enough big goals against big teams. Um, but but you know, clearly that has a great deal to do with how well the team around him was coping against playing against a big team. And uh, uh, what he did do was deliver point after point after point against teams we might well have struggled against otherwise. But at club level, no. I, I you know I think he actually deserved better. He did. He did also score. I mean. He- He's the only player I can think of uh, who scored big goals against big teams for Ireland. I mean, maybe not enough, but I mean, he scored yeah. competitive goals against Spain, Germany, Holland, France, Italy, you know, in, in huge games. I'm forgetting that one that he disputed with, uh, yeah. So you mentioned Italy, yeah. Italy, yeah. With, uh, who was it? Uh, Noel Hunt. Noel Hunt. Poor yeah. old Noel Hunt. Um, yeah, yeah. Did Look, it, I, I, I'm certainly not arguing with that. He, he was absolutely our standout uh, goal scorer for more than a decade. He was, you know, the top goal scorer in campaigns for, yeah, I think five out of seven campaigns up to 2012. Since then, you know, I, I think it's fair to say his goals really have been against, uh, for the most part, against the lesser sides. But before that, absolutely. He was, you know, in any big game that you looked at, any big game, whether, you know, you mentioned Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, you know, he scored big goals against these teams, and and as we were headed into these team uh, games against these teams, you absolutely knew that um, his performance was going to be key because he was the one player in our side that that you know could could get in amongst uh, defenses, you know, could get get could be shadowed by really top class centre halves and could still you know make a yard for himself and put the ball away so yeah absolutely I, I wouldn't dispute his his record I'm not trying to take anything away from him simply simply pointing out that you know had he been for instance um, an English striker I think you know he would have scored a lot more goals against very top class opposition and, and, and might have made um, you know a much much bigger impact at, at major championships um, but look you know I, I, I mean that absolutely in the context of a guy who's from Dublin and, and, and I've never come across in my time a player who who was more proud to, to play for Ireland. No, and that comes across really clearly in his statement. It also always yeah. came across really clearly in the way that he played the game. Not necessarily in the way that he spoke about the about the game. He wasn't the most giving person, I guess, in, in, in interviews, even though he got to do a lot more of them over the years, particularly when he became yeah. captain. So that's what made it interesting for me, uh, Emmett, that you picked out, you were doing one of these sort of sidebars, five best moments of Robbie Keane for Ireland in the paper today. And a couple of them, yeah, likes of the home debut against Argentina, the goal against Germany, the World Cup, that kind of thing I was expecting. But you point out November 2009, World Cup playoff against France, the events on the pitch in Paris to find how these playoff games are remembered. But there was something about Ireland's captain that week. You're talking about the week in the build-up to the game. Yeah. What was it that struck you? 
Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, uh, you know, you talk about the interviews, and the, you know that he that he didn't uh, he didn't talk uh, that much, or or he didn't give too much away. I mean, I was reading back over some of the interviews that he did yesterday, and he did a couple of uh, really really interesting interviews with Tom Humphreys back, you know, a decade ago or more. Uh, and he comes across as a really impressive character. I spent a little bit of time with him again, and going back further than that in Cyprus and, and Nigeria, got to know him a little bit at that stage. But you know, particularly when he broke into the senior squad. Uh, um, uh, as he kind of grew into that, he became wary of the media, I think, and uh, and and as you say, like you know, didn't give too much away in in the kind of passing uh, encounters that he had in mix zones or pitch side at the end of games, and and I think it was a real pity because um, he's a bright guy, he's an articulate guy, he talks very impressively about football, and and he can talk about a lot of stuff all, uh, away from the game as well, and and I think it's a real pity that we didn't see more of of that side of him, you know, and um, there were a couple of particular incidents with the media where it became really clear how, how distrustful he was of and he, I think he felt that he'd been stitched up once or twice whether rightly or wrongly I'm not you know you can get, debate that but but the fact is it did seem to impact on his view of people um, as things progressed I think you know you saw him grow into um, the role of senior international and he, and he was made captain quite early on and I, and I think he always took that role as, as, as Irish national team captain very very seriously there was always kind of talk from you know um, from the people you know, from Steve Staunton, who, who I think gave him the armband in the first place, but from other players about the sort of player he was around the hotel room and the dressing room on the pitch um, as a leader. You know, we've heard him describe that, a, 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 you know, a, a great deal. And I, and certainly the sense that you got from everybody, including him, was that that was the case. But you <laughs> I, know, like say, I like the way you say, including him, Emmett, uh, it's, I think that's true. You know, he know. I mean, if if you told me on his debut this guy's going to be Ireland's record goal scorer, I would have said, "Yeah, I can believe that." But if if someone had said this guy is going to be the record, uh, that he will he will play more times as captain for Ireland than almost anyone else will even play for Ireland, I probably would have been a bit taken aback. Do you think he really was a good captain? He never seemed a natural in that. Always as though he's kind of impersonating a little bit what a captain ought to be. Really? Yeah. No, I didn't get that sense. Uh, I, I thought he was impressive. And, 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 and just on those playoff games, I thought that, you know, we went into those games. I don't, I don't well, certainly, look, I was sceptical enough about our chances against France over over two legs. They had, you know, still some really world-class players, um, although it was hard to believe a few months later at the finals. But, you know, I would have, you know, really fancied France to, to beat us and beat us well over those two games. But I just remember two or three of the press conferences he did, particularly the pre-match press conference in, in, in Malahide uh, before the first leg and there was something about the way he came across I think he was you know the conviction was absolutely clear you kind of toss around terms like playing with passion and conviction and you know uh, you know togetherness and determination and all that sort of stuff and you get this from players my god like they're going to be handed it to people on on on, um, on kind of you know cards at the start of their career here keep these handy you know you'll, you, you'll need them in press uh, conferences but I thought there was a real conviction about them over over that weekend and even after the first leg was lost and the situation looked pretty grim I don't think any t- team in the history of, of World Cup, Cup uh, two-legged games had ever come back from losing the first leg at home at that stage but he still you know conveyed a belief um, uh, personal and collective that Ireland could go to uh, Paris and do something and, and and he was proven to be correct no matter how it turned out I mean they, they turned in one of the one of the you know one of the outstanding performances of his time in the team in, in, in the Stade de France that night why do you think he? Why didn't he impress you, Ken? As a captain, as a, as a captain. Sorry, yeah. Well, I mean, for instance, uh, I think back to when he did get finally dropped from the team. I mean, I, I, I think he always, I think he was always looking out for his own interests. Which I, is, I think that's natural enough with yeah. striker, though, isn't it? I think you could argue that maybe a striker isn't the ideal captain in a side, you know? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I, I never really... I, I was a bit puzzled when he did become captain. I didn't think he, he grew into the role. He sort of adapted to it uh, and ended up being quite good. I mean, one thing I remember being quite impressed by was when I went over to Los Angeles to see him in that... Um, he was in, in, in one of his MLS Cup uh, finals mm. and mm. being amazed at how kind of different his image there was well maybe it was more kind of how he thought it should have been in, in Ireland at the time but he was like kind of presidential you know what I mean yeah. he, he was like here's Robbie Keane he was like um, Neil Armstrong or something <laughs> you know this this kind of yeah. like granite jawed sort of stony faced leader who everyone uh, you know everyone sort of looked up to and thought you know Robbie is this but- man 
I, I think a great deal of that, and, and the, the reason he didn't achieve that sort of status here is down to his club career and the problems that he had at Spurs and Liverpool. And I think that, that those left him looking a little flawed. Um, people were never quite convinced by Robbie because his big managers at the peak of his career never seemed completely convinced by Robbie. And uh, and I think if he'd had, you know, if, if, if he had had six, seven straight years in a decent Spurs team as their main striker, knocking in 25 goals a year, then, you know, I think he would have been regarded here as Ari Ibrahimovic. I think fans who went to games though generally appreciate it. I mean, football people. I'm I'm, I'm using a lot of uh, John Giles, Eamon Dunphy phrases here, I think, today, Emmett. But, you know, he was very, obviously he was going to thank the fans during his very long statement, but he really went out of his way. He said, during my 18 years playing, they've always given me strength through the highs and lows of my life, particularly at the time of the death of my father, Robbie Senior, who was one of my biggest supporters. It really helped me through that difficult time. I'll never forget this. You know, that's obviously a lovely sentiment from Robbie, but it's also the kind of thing you don't just throw into a statement. It's something that must have stayed with him. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he he goes back to a time when the relationship between the Irish players and the fans was very different. He came in, you know, to a squad that still had that sort of kind of... uh, um, that that willingness and, and ability to some extent to, to mix fairly freely with fans and I guess he would have at, particularly at that point had more of a connection with them than most um, there'd also been you know some of the kind of hardcore fans who'd followed the U teams um, around the place and, and he would have had some sort of relationship with them I don't think it's possible for the younger players now to have that sort of relationship I just don't think you know with the best will in the world uh, most of them don't want to have it um, the team structure the way the camp is structured uh, doesn't allow it and uh, and and in, in in reality, it's it's just not possible. It would it would it would crush uh, most players. Um, but I but I think there was a touch of that with him. But for all of that, I have to say, I met my uh, I met my share of sceptics down the years. And yeah. for all the goals he scored against Ireland, there were still people who felt he should have been delivering more. I, I, I don't think it was justified, but I don't think it ever went away. I think there, were, there was always a kind of um, uh, a portion of the uh, of the punters who were who were never quite happy with him. All right. That's uh, always the way, but I guess. Listen, brilliant stuff, Emma. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Sport takes focus. Sport takes commitment. Sport takes dedication. Pretty much how we feel about savings at Rabo Direct. Rabo Direct, the straight-talking savings bank. Interesting to use the term presidential there, Ken, mm. because our actual president is a big football fan and has heaped praise on Robbie Keane in the last twenty-four hours. Described thirty-six-year-old as an inspirational figure. From his under eight, Robbie Keane deserves to be recognised and celebrated as one of the greatest Irish players of all time. And his achievements with the Irish senior team over more than 18 years will take some surpassing. From his underage success with the national side through his remarkable record of 145 senior caps and 67 goals, Robbie has always been an inspirational figure for everyone in Irish football. In recent years, his commitment to the national side, travelling from Los Angeles regularly to join with the team, has been remarkable. Moreover, as a representative of our country, wherever in the world he's played, Robbie has always conducted himself with great dignity and has been a wonderful ambassador for Ireland on behalf of all Irish football fans. I want to thank Robbie for all he's given to Irish football over a glittering career in the green jersey. I wish him continued success at club level and I wish both he and Claudine and their two sons continued happiness and good health. So a classy statement there from President Michael D. Higgins and hard to argue with a lot of it. I would imagine that uh, that's the kind of thing that Robbie Keane would like to hear. Oh yeah. You know, in, in, in your argument that he maybe feels that he has a status in LA as this dignified leader type that has, has sometimes eluded him here. When you yeah. get the president of your country talking like that about, about you being a great ambassador for your country. That's not yeah. bad. No, it's 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 all good. Um, I mean, Robbie Keane will be back. We have not seen the last of this man. No. Uh, will he be the manager of the Irish team? I think probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe not uh, for the next couple of years, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happens uh, sooner rather than later. Jonathan Wilson, this morning you launched a full frontal assault on Jurgen Klopp. How has the reaction been? Well, uh, the Guardian headline writer seems to have launched a full frontal attack on Jurgen Klopp. Um, I wrote a piece pointing out that he goes back to Tottenham, which is where he took charge of his first Liverpool game 10 months ago. Um, he's still picking up fewer points per game than Brendan Rodgers did. And yet he's been given this new six-year contract. And everybody still seems, and I include myself in that, he's still convinced he's the right man for the job and he's convinced he will do very, very good things there. And so my, my point was to, to try and look at why are the certain managers who we're sceptical of immediately, and why are the certain managers like Klopp, um, for whom inconsistency, we, we, we look at the good stuff and, and don't focus too much on the, on the bad stuff. And I guess it's particularly relevant this week, coming as it does after a defeat to Burnley, that 
you know, if they're going to challenge for top four, they can't afford that many results like that. So it's not an attack on Klopp in any way. If anything, it's an attack on modern football culture, our lack of patience with managers. Um, and, you know, I make the point that if you look at Shankly, or you look at Busby, or you look at Revy, or you look at Clough, look at Chapman, and look at their record in the first two or three seasons, it's pretty indifferent. And I sort of wonder how many great managerial careers have been snuffed out because of the impatience of the modern age. So if it's an attack on anything, it's an attack on impatience. And of course, the problem with that in the modern age is then demonstrated by the howls of outrage that have followed on in the comment section on Twitter from people who've only read The Guardian's slightly mischievous headline. I don't know if it's a mischievous headline. Jonathan, I don't know if that's fair. The, the headline is the question, how long will Liverpool keep faith, faith with Jurgen Klopp? Uh, I appreciate the nuances you talk about there, which are all very present in your piece. But if I kind of flick down to the final paragraph, Klopp is going to have to find some answers. It may be the, the Burnley result was a blip, a useful warning against any sense the job is nearly done. But if it wasn't, if Liverpool do oscillate between brilliant and ordinary, as they did last season, it'll be fascinating to see how much longer patience with the manager will endure. And that line written by you does seem to be a pretty specific point made about uh, about Klopp. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the answer to questions about the inconsistency last season was always, well, he, he wins big games, which is totally fair enough. And obviously it's better to, to beat Manchester City um, and lose to Palace, for instance, than, than the other way around, or to beat Chelsea uh, and um, drop points against Newcastle at home or against Sunderland at home. Um than the other way around. But eventually, you've got to iron out. You've got to work out a way of beating the smaller sides as well. Uh, and that, I think, becomes relevant after the, the, the Burnley game. And Klopp himself clearly was pretty um, angry about that. I mean, the press conference he's given this morning, I, I, I haven't seen it all by any means, but the little bits that, that, that have filtered through, he's saying that um, the, uh, the first goal, there was four, four chances to make a tackle and his players didn't do it, saying they've got to be harder. So that's an attitude thing. And I think that's intriguing because... That was what he, he was focusing on after the Arsenal game. He said in the, in the first half, it was as if they weren't fully convinced in what they were doing. So that, that suggests that his, his method, his process, his philosophy, whatever term you want to use, hasn't quite yet been fully taken on board. And of course, that's, that's probably, that's arguably a positive in that you assume when it is fully taken on board, if it is fully taken on board, then things will be, will be much better. And I guess that's what... Liverpool fans and journalists, and again, I include myself in that. That's why we think it will get better. Um, but I am intrigued as to how long he gets if it doesn't immediately get better, given that he's now had a pre-season, he's been able to bring in at least some of the players he wants to, some kind of reshaping of the squad. And you know, the, the issue of pre-season was something we were told again and again last season that he wanted the players fitter. Well, they should be as fit as he wants them now. That's no longer an excuse. So, yeah, I, 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 I think it is. Uh, intriguing how long Liverpool fans have patience if those results don't come. My suspicion is they will start to come. But if they don't, how long does that desire for a Messiah, how long does Klopp's very obvious charisma uh, stop those questions being asked in, in forceful terms? Well, I think you can you can already see evidence that some of some of them are, are annoyed with... I mean, there was this whole thing that happened during the week with Mamadou Sacco. Maybe he's going to be sent on loan and evidently quite a popular player with a lot of the supporters... We're saying, why, you know, why are we getting rid of this guy when, frankly, our central defenders are, are useless? But I can also see why he uh, tends to say, say why people have more faith in him than David Moyes was extended at Manchester United, to pick an example. Like, nobody believed in David Moyes from almost the beginning, even though his results actually were very similar to, to Jurgen Klopp's, I guess. There, there are three things that I can think of. One is that he had a, a good record at Dortmund and built a very good team there. Two is that, as you've mentioned... He's won a lot of big games in in an exciting manner, and that that's memorable to people. And the third is that um, Liverpool fans kind of have to have faith in him because if he's no good, then they're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> they have no choice but to have faith in him, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I think all of, all those things are true, but I, I I do think it's that in itself is interesting. What is it about a manager that persuades us? Yeah, he's worth giving time to. Um, and you think even something like Kane Dalglish in his second spell at Liverpool, you know, he wins the League Cup in, in his last season. That doesn't save him. And that's Kane Dalglish, who you think has got plenty of credit in the bank. Well, Klopp seems to have built up an extraordinary store of credit on you know, a handful of very, very good performances in, in, in big games. Um, now, again, I'm not saying that Liverpool fans shouldn't have that faith in him. And I, I'm saying that I'm, I'm convinced as well. I, I think he... 
everything looks very, very promising apart from these, these blips every now and again. Um, but those blips have to, have to disappear. Well, how would you say he compares with Mauricio Pochettino? Um, you could say maybe the styles of football are similar. When you look at Pochettino's first season at Tottenham, he was, I think, 1.68 points per game, which isn't a whole lot more than you know Klopp's 1.6. Uh, big improvement, though, in the second season. Um, uh, they're playing each other on Saturday. Do you think that Pochettino's going to give Klopp another nightmare? Well, yeah, I think the comparison of Pochettino is interesting. I think Pochettino himself is under a bit of pressure this season. That there's a recurring theme with Pochettino teams that they, they fade away in the final uh, third of the season. And that's been true of, I think, the day they first full season at Espanola didn't happen. But every subsequent season, it has happened. Um, now, you wonder if bringing in two players, I guess they could bring in more, it, it is enough to, to counter that uh, and, and to, to keep them going to the end of the season. And you know, there is an argument that Tottenham's performances last season weren't actually that different to what they'd gone before. Just everybody else was a bit worse. So they ended up having a title challenge and finishing third. But in terms of points per game, it wasn't that good. Now, yeah, you can make, you can pick holes in anything if you're going to, if you really want to cherry pick the, the, the right stuff. But, uh, you know, I think there's, there's questions for him as well. And, you know, Tottenham weren't particularly impressive in beating Palace on Saturday. Um, certainly the first half away at Everton, they, they look a bit scratchy. So I think they're still sort of struggling for rhythm this season. Um, so, I mean, I, th- I think Saturday's game, you know, it's interesting from both sides. They've both got a little bit to prove. Jonathan, we'll let you get back to your comments section there. I'm sure there's plenty to read. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. Well, how do you feel for Jonathan there? I'm sure, I'm sure you've incurred the wrath of the... I'm not going to pick Liverpool fans out as, uh, you know, the only set of supporters who take umbrage when they feel their club is at the end of a, an unfair piece. Well, but it's just... They, they, they certainly aren't afraid to voice their opinions, I find. Football provides a, a lot of opportunities for people to behave in that way. Um, you know, we maybe we thought... Maybe Tim Berners-Lee, as he, as he contemplated his creation, uh, others would, might have thought, this is amazing. This invention is going to bring people together. Uh, information will flow uh, from one side of the world to the other. Uh, people will engage in recent debate. Uh, questions will be uh, solved and, and approached you know, rationally. This is this, my scientific invention of the Internet. Um, that's not how it's worked out. Uh, it turns out that people don't really care about the truth. What they care about is defending their own beliefs, <laughs> whatever they are, whatever relationship to reality they have. Uh, it's by far the most important thing. Um, any point that you make in any way, you, you, everybody who's this exists knows has felt the same thing happening to them. If you try, if you make some kind of a point, and someone else does about anything, it doesn't matter what it's about. Football, I'm saying, provides the occasion yes, for a lot yeah. of this, uh, but it's by no means. Uh, just exclusive to football, that once you, you make the point and someone disagrees with you, you're not thinking about the point anymore. You're thinking about beating that person. You know, it's like defending, I defend my point, regardless of how stupid it may even now seem to me, and I beat down this other person and crush, crush them. And the point itself, nothing could be less relevant. Nothing could actually be less relevant. It becomes w- about winning. Yeah, so in the case of when you've, when you've grievously insulted Jurgen Klopp in the way that Johnson so clearly has. I, I don't think I don't think he can be surprised uh, when people, without reading his article, take him to task uh, and abuse him. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I, I wish him well. You wanted to talk about Daniel Sturridge very briefly. Well, just Sturridge had. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how involved he is against Tottenham, because he played against Burnley on the right side of a front three, uh, which is a position that Sturridge has never liked playing in, and he was. And he pointed it out afterwards, which I think is, considering he played so badly, it's always better, I think, to make points about where you'd like to play after you've played well, rather than when you've stunk the place out, as he did. Uh, of course, it's more difficult for me to play wide. I'm a centre forward. In the modern game, you have to try and be flexible, but everyone knows my best position. Everyone knows where I enjoy playing the most. I'm a player who plays an instinct. In the middle of clarity and movements, things I've been doing for years. I'm an autopilot there. You do things because you're used to doing it. But when you're out wide, you've got to worry about different things. It's just a different way. The way you move, the way you play, it's all different. You can't play the same as you do centre forward. Um, but I have to do a job for the team. I'm not saying I'm happy to do it. That's saying I've got to do a job for the team because it's a team game. So somewhat silky tone mm-hmm. uh, from Sturridge. But the question I have over him is whether he really is that effective as a centre forward. You know, he—I I think he, physically he's 
he's he's short of. I mean, you could say, well, Sturridge has got an amazing goal record, you know, for Liverpool, amazing. Uh, he's the fastest player in their history to 50 goals. It's an incredible ratio of goals to games. But I think physically he's he's a long way short of where he, he was. He's not quick anymore. He's not he's not really strong. He can get brushed out of the game very easily by a defender that's concentrating. And uh, if he insists on playing in only one position, that maybe he's not physically cut out to play anymore. Uh, I don't see how much longer he's really got to... Uh, to uh, to be in that team. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a listen to our latest show, which features US Marathon Ryan Lochte. Lots of good stuff there, and plenty of Dublin Kerry chat with Oshin McConville too. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thanks again. We'll chat to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 